1: Listener production. Hey, I'm pro surfer and mental health advocate, Cooper Chapman, and this is Good Humans. In this episode, I'm at Sydney's Freshwater Beach, the first place that anyone ever stood up on a surfboard in Australia, with seven-time world surf champion, Lane Beachley. Lane tells me the biggest challenges she's had to overcome in her life and what changed the day her husband asked her that important question, are you okay? Welcome to another episode of Good Humans Podcast. I'm here with an extremely special guest, a lady who doesn't really need much of an introduction. She's won consecutive six world titles surfing, a seventh, a few years later, and then an eighth Masters World title a couple years ago, and she is also a massive advocate for women's sport. She does some great things for the community, and you're going to learn a lot about it today. Please welcome, Lane Beachley. Hello,
0: Cooper. How are you?
1: I'm great, thanks. Okay. So, I really like doing podcasts chronologically. I've found them really nice. So, we're going to start way back at the beginning. You had a very interesting childhood, a little bit different, well, I'd say a lot different to your average childhood. Can you talk me a little bit about when you were six years old? What happened, and then we'll move on from there.
0: Oh, so we're not starting from when I was born. We're moving straight into six. I mean, six. Ooh. I think <laughs> the first May. I mean, so I was born oh, into sorry. this world. I started surfing when I was four. Yes, when I was six years of age, my mother passed away unexpectedly. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I was adopted into the Beach loving family with the last name Beachley. Became a pro surfer. Very fortunate twist of fate. But my mother um, went into hospital for a cosmetic cosmetic surgery procedure and unexpectedly died on the operating table due to uh, high blood pressure and uh, had a brain hemorrhage during the during the surgery
1: Not 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 an easy thing when you're six years old. Can you remember much about back then how it was processing that?
0: Yeah, I I remember Dad coming home and telling me she was gone and and I remember putting my head in my pillow and bawling my eyes out and feeling very uncomfortable and very restless. And then at that point thinking, you know, I don't really like feeling this sadness and uh, and that's when I decided to run to the top of the hill with my skateboard and fly down it as fast as I possibly could (laughs) at the time Um, just to break the sadness and distract myself from the pain and suffering. That doesn't mean that it ended the pain. It just distracted me from it. So then I was, you know, processing it for the next couple of years. You know, I remember having nightmares and jumping into my brother's bed just to, and, you know, crying, um, you know, falling asleep with my dad. So it was pretty distressing, but I, I I had the benefit of youth. You know, I didn't understand losing someone forever. I just knew that they were gone and I didn't didn't really comprehend what that would mean for, for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah, I mean, at six years old, losing a mother is such a tragic thing and I, I can't imagine that any kid could really process it properly at that young of an age. And no. then moving forward, you touched on it um, briefly just then, you are adopted. When did that come about? When did your dad let you know that you are adopted and how how hard was that to process? Yeah,
0: that was harder. <laughs> and that was because my I was older. I was eight years of age then and by that stage I had already Uh, established, um, I guess, uh, an independent view of who I was and where I fit in. And the minute that that view was crushed by the knowledge that I didn't belong where I thought I belonged. And the interesting thing when I say that, and this seems to be a common denominator across all adoptees, is that we have this belief that we've been rejected, not accepted. And uh, when my dad said, you know, you're adopted, I chose to hear you've been abandoned. And even though I was in a very loving, nurturing, um, caring environment with my dad and my brother, from that point on, I decided, well, I've been abandoned and rejected by my mother. So therefore, I'm not deserving of love. And that was really the catalyst moment that drove me to become a world champion. At the time, I wanted to be a world champion at everything I did. And then I chose surfing when I was 14
1: let's talk about that, that moment, obviously becoming a world champion. And thanks for sharing that, by the way, it's no such okay. a tough thing. And I can imagine so many people get so much out of hearing that. And that that idea of abandonment rather than being accepted and being brought in by somebody because they love you and because they want to have you as part of their family, mm. it must be a really hard thing to, uh, to deal with when you're that age. And mm. it sounds like you found that outlet and you found that sense of belonging maybe in the ocean once that sort of surfing yes. came around. So let's, yeah. let's talk about your relationship at a young age with surfing.
0: Well, I fell in love with the ocean before I could walk into the ocean and I fell in love with surfing when I was four. And I feel that every day I surf, it, it brings me this sense of calmness, centeredness, connection, and I feel like the ocean is where I truly belong. And so when I think about um, my desire to become a world champion. You know, they say where your passion, you don't choose your passion, your passion chooses you. I feel like um, surfing was always this this current that was cursing through my veins. It was that love of being in the ocean and immersing myself in nature and connecting with with that. And, uh, and I feel that that's why I was so deeply drawn to it and – I was very fortunate. My dad was a surfer, my older brother's a surfer and uh, and so that way my love of surfing was just an organic thing. I never really put myself under the pressure or expectation to become a world champion surfer until such time as I believed I was good enough to actually fulfil that goal. Um, and then once I put that pressure on myself, it was unrelenting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. and I've, As
0: my trophy room can attest to <laughs> that uh, statement.
1: <laughs> yeah, you obviously one of will... Next to Steph Gilmore, you've won the most world titles out of any female surfer, the only surfer of all time to win six consecutive world titles. Mm. At what moment, you said it was about when you were 14, did you realise being a world champion was something that was for you and especially coming in a sport back then which was so heavily male-dominated and such a, I guess, a career path that wasn't really... Would I guess if you told your school teachers, they probably would have laughed at you when yes. you were that age. How well, hard was it to overcome that?
0: If, it would have been nice just for them to laugh at me, but they got a whole lot more uh, uh, evil. <laughs> well, no, let's not let's not be mean to school teachers. You know they were doing their best and looking out for my best interests, But I was discouraged, to say the the least, uh, from pursuing a goal or a dream of um, becoming a world champion surfer. You know, it, it, as you said, it wasn't a very viable lifestyle for women. There was very few women involved. There was no industry. There was the, the women's tour was, wasn't was the most respected environment. Um, there is a great movie coming out called Girls Can't Surf in 2021, which um, which highlights the plight of women surfing through the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, uh, which will give you a really good snapshot into what we were dealing with. So chauvinism, sexism. Um, threats, intimidations, you name it, we encountered it. And when I was a 14-year-old deciding to become a world champion surfer, I didn't allow the external circumstances around me to dictate what I was able to achieve or not able to achieve. I drew on my intrinsic motivation and my intrinsic motivation was a subconscious driver of being enough. That's all. That's the golden egg I was striving for. So when I as an eight-year-old said, okay, I've got to be a world champion to be deserving of love, as a 14-year-old I said, okay, I'm going to choose surfing to achieve that goal and it wasn't until I was 26 when I won my first world title did that really set all the wheels in motion and when I hit my sixth consecutive world title at the age of 32, <laughs> how old was I? 31, 32, um, that's when I took a step like it's almost like I took a deep breath and took like this observational view and went, okay, I'm enough now. And that's all because I had defined success as becoming the most successful surfer in history and it wasn't until I achieved that was I then going to be worthy of love. So I, the question I love to ask people is what's driving you and how much of your sense of self-worth and identity is wrapped up in that?
1: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting concept the way that you felt you didn't deserve love and you found that surfing was going to be that The vehicle to take you there to find that sense of belonging and that sense of worth. And looking back at your career, you weren't going to stop and let anything get in your way. I've heard some great stories and I've heard some
0: (laughs) Yes, that was brutal. Yeah.
1: And that's great. And it's awesome that you look back and reflect on that time of your life as you were doing what you felt you needed to do to deserve love. And it's such a beautiful story. I think that you've I feel like looking at young women in sport, it's it's very rare to find very driven women who are ready to put it all on the line to win. Whereas if you look at men, it happens a hell of a lot more. What do you think was different about you? Do you think your upbringing really shaped you to be the professional athlete that you were?
0: I'm sure my upbringing contributed to the the athlete or more the human being that I am, but it was more what was going on in my own mind that determined or shaped the the competitor I became because I was so fiercely driven. I had the, the tag of being compassionate as a tiger shark, which means zero, and I was very fiercely focused on the outcome and I was very hard on myself as well. So when I reflect back on that period, yes, there's things I know I, I would definitely do differently if I had the opportunity to go back and do it, but I've learned so much from it. And I was just reflecting on this a, a couple of days ago. I was thinking, you know, there were so many girls on tour that were way more talented than I was, but because I was so fiercely invested in becoming world champion that I feel that, that gave me a bit of my competitive advantage. But then I often wonder why why did I win six consecutive world titles or why was I blessed with the opportunity to go and win seven world titles? And I often think I had the courage to stand up, to answer your question, I had the courage to stand up and fight for what I believed in. I had the courage to declare to the world what I was going after. I had the, the knowledge to surround myself with people who could help me achieve it. I had the intestinal fortitude to, to commit myself to taking those actions daily. And now I realise all of those life lessons were generated and built and experienced because now I have the capacity to share those with others. It was all about me for that period and now it's all about everyone else. So I'm just really grateful that I've learnt as much as I have learned, and now I have the platform to share that knowledge with with the world for the greater good.
1: Yeah, and that reflective process is so important when it comes to mental health and when it comes to, moving forward in life and growing as a person. And the the way that you have that capacity to look back on those moments and look at it as an experience that you learned from mm-hmm. is so powerful. And let's talk about the way that you've used that to help people. And you had your foundation for many years. How important was that giving back? <laughs>
0: Really important. I realised it was one of my foundational values, my own core value at the time. And our values evolve as we do as human beings. But when I was winning, I really wanted to make a difference. I mean, when I joined the Women's Tour back in 1990, I wanted to reshape it. I wanted to change it. I was like, I don't like what it looks like, how it's how it's res- or disrespected. You know, I want to change women's surfing. I want it to emulate women's tennis. So I've always had these visions of instigating change and, and challenging the status quo. Then after I won my fifth consecutive title. That's when I started my foundation, Aim for the Stars, and that was all about providing financial and moral support for young girls and women. Once again, it was a reflective process. I looked back on my career and go, what can I do to shortcut the struggle for young women to achieve their goals? Not just in sport, but just in life. So music, science, business, arts, academia, you name it. Um, so over 15 years we provided about a million dollars in scholarships to about 500 young girls and women and that was a very rewarding, challenging but very rewarding process and I met some amazing girls who have gone to continue to, to change the world and, and change the communities they live in.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful the way you put that and the way that you had that urge to give back and that urge after becoming such a successful and a pioneer of a sport to want to use that for good. Mm. I was listening to another podcast you're in recently, and I hope you don't mind me bringing this up. Do you? Th- you said that you didn't really ever want to have kids, and that was something that you decided from a young age. Mm-hmm. Do you think your foundation was an outlet for you to have those moments of nurturing young women and young people to achieve their dreams, just like you've been given the platform and the opportunity to achieve such huge feats?
0: Yeah, essentially, yeah. I ended up with five hundred kids of my own, and <laughs> I don't. I'm I'm not conscious of that. Feature within me, I do know that I, you know, I do have a, a, a nurturing side to me, and I love giving back and helping people. That's what I love to do. Uh, I don't see the foundation as being a substitute for having children of my own. However, it does give me the outlet to nurture people's development and growth, and and um, and nature as human beings, and knowing that I'm positively influencing, impacting people. That's really what drives me to do these kind of things. And
1: that's exactly why you have we have you here today on Good <laughs> Humans Podcast because you're such a great human. It's Thanks. such a beautiful beautiful thing to do to give back and use that knowledge and that that skill and that base of your life to help other people's lives, I think it's such a beautiful thing.
0: Thanks.
1: I want to rewind Well, it's back. what you're
0: doing too, right? I mean, I'm it's trying. It's what you're all about. I mean, it, it, takes- it makes
1: me feel good. I mean, I feel better doing these t- chats and giving people an outlet to improve their mental health and improve just hear stories and hear beautiful stories of resilience and try and inspire people to take control of their life exactly like what you're doing mm. with your amazing new venture, which we will talk about in a minute. Yeah. But I want to rewind back. I was listening um, to another podcast as well with <laughs> you doing a bit more research. Oh, wow the boat shed when you were young and you worked there and you got Mm. given an opportunity by your boss. Can you tell me about that and how important it was to have those people in your life support you and give you that backing when you were in a sport that was so difficult and Mm. so tough being a young female athlete in a male dominant sport?
0: Yeah, the guys were real dickheads in the early (laughs) years. It was really tough. Uh, And and I'm, I'm grateful for the challenge because it taught me to stand up and fight for what I believed in. It taught me to surround myself with my allies. It taught me to be really conscious of who I have re- within my dream team. You know, it's taught me so many fundamental principles that I now live my life by. And one of those um, experiences was um, what, what you're referring to is when my boss at the Old Malley Boat Shed gave me a $3,000 check. And, and all of that was it culminated in a catalyst moment of of then going on and becoming a world champion. But prior to that, I was ready to quit that year. And it was the, this was 1995. So it was the year I came second in the world. And I saw coming second as a dismal failure because I'd set my sights on becoming world champion and anything less than that was failure. And so I was obviously very hard on myself. One night at three o'clock in the morning after work, I used to work from six at night to three in the morning. My boss said, listen, I see how hard you're working. I see how much you want it. And here's three thousand dollars. That's your next round-the-world air ticket, and and it was such a blessing in disguise. And and I was able to you know pay it forward by going on and becoming world champion, and then creating a foundation that provided three thousand dollars scholarships to young girls and women. To to and I wasn't waiting for them to become world champions. I was I was waiting for them to have the courage to ask for help. And that was one thing that I had to learn early on was having the courage to raise my hand and say either I'm not okay. Or I need guidance or can you help me out with something? And that takes a lot of courage.
1: It does. And with without cu- with without vulnerability, there's no courage. And yes. you're an ambassador for Are You OK, mm. um, Are You U OK Day. And those relationships that let's say you poisoned when you were on tour because you were so fierce, which
0: I like that term. I poisoned them, yes, all right. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Yeah. No not in a not in a, bad not in a malicious term. term but yeah. in a way
1: that that's what it took to win, and that's why you. Well,
0: that's what I believed it took to win.
1: Exactly. Mm. Asking for help was something that's so talked about in society in our days when it comes to mental health. And Are You Okay Day is such an amazing charity and an amazing organisation doing great things, and we're starting conversations. Those relationships that you had on tour had led you to nowadays have these moments in your life that are quite difficult. Can you talk me through the moment that Are You Okay Day, I guess, came prevalent in your life?
0: Yeah, so I'm because I was so fierce, and I I think that um, super high performers tend to have this roller coaster of emotions quite often, and we we refer to the euphoria of success and the disappointment or depression of failure, and and that tends to be what we trust in and what we believe in, and so I'm not going to go too far into that, but success was hard. I believe success had to be hard. I had invested in struggle and so I made it so. And we will always seek evidence of what we believe to be true. And if you want to know what you believe, just take a look at your life and that will dictate or at least clearly demonstrate what you believe. My relationships on tour, yes, some of them were extremely poisoned to the point of no return. Some of them I was very fortunate that I had a couple of girlfriends like Rochelle Ballard, for example, who with my honesty barometer and uh, And called me on my shit, Pauline Mensa, similar kind of relationship, who are still good friends today when um, when I was competing i I've gone through states of depression, and I became very familiar with that dark cloud, that uh, black dog, and I knew the the emotions and I, I, I was familiar with everything that came with it. I thought I'd got through it. I didn't realize that it was something that you're always Going to live with, and then a couple of years later, or a couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine got married. All the girls um, who were on tour with me at the time were invited, and I wasn't, and I took it very personally. and I went into states of depression over that. and it was just something it was as simple as a photo on social media that I saw that I wasn't uh, that I was missing from, and I'd convinced myself that I was that I no longer belonged or actually never did belong. So I went into these deep, dark states, and we all know how to Break ourselves out of negativity. But everything that I usually resort to wasn't working. Surfing wasn't working. Laughter wasn't working. I was numbing and I was getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this dark, numbed state. And it wasn't until my husband asked me, Are you okay? that it shocked me to my core. It kind of hit a dagger through my heart. And I instantly had to look at myself in the mirror and go, Actually, no, I'm not okay. And so now I have to have the conversation. Well, first, I have to own the fact I'm not okay then I have to have the conversation with somebody who's earned the right to share in my struggles, my husband being one of them.
1: Mm. That's It's so great to know that somebody of your stature and your status can have those times that are tough and it's so normal and so regular for yeah. that. And, and sometimes it is that question, are you okay? And having the courage to be vulnerable, as Brene Brown, Dr yes. Brene Brown talks about a lot, there's no courage without vulnerability and it's such a beautiful thing that you notice that you needed to have that chat and, it, and it's mm. so beautiful.
0: Yeah, I love how Brene Brown, you know, she talks a lot about, she's a vulnerability and shame researcher, mm. <laughs> which is a very sexy thing to research. But I love how she talks about vulnerabilities being the power to be seen. And a lot, of us can't even, a lot of us don't even have the courage to look in our own reflection in a mirror, let alone allowing others.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: is to see us. So it starts with the self and it starts with awareness of the self and then if you're clear on who you are and how you want to feel then you surround yourself with people who propagate that and who or emulate that or who support that. Um, so if you're not sure how you're feeling, you can actually start looking at the people around you and they will be reflections of how you feel. So if you have the courage to be seen and you have the courage to see yourself, then you can anchor yourself in vulnerability. And when you're vulnerable, you no longer can be hurt because you're in a state of acceptance.
1: Yeah. It's it's almost like giving yourself permission to be happy again. When you go through those times where it's really tough, it does take a lot of courage to be able to talk about it. And, and it's, I think it's becoming more accepted in, the world in our days, but I think it's still always going to be that human feeling of nobody wants to look like they're in trouble, but mm. it's just the more conversations we can have around it and people like yourself who can be vulnerable and share those stories, it can really give people the opportunity and the permission to have those conversations with the people around them too. Yeah.
0: And it's the stories you're subscribing to as well. That's keeping you stuck in those negative places, those dark negative fearful places.
1: Exactly. And so many times they're just made up in our head. Like, they're all made up they're in our all head. Made yeah. up in our- and, that,
0: and if we go back to that eight year old self, you know, my dad was saying, I love you. You're my baby girl. You've always been a part of this family. But the story I started telling myself was you've been abandoned, you've been rejected, and your own mother doesn't want you. So they're very two very different stories. We're both, my dad and I are both sitting in the same environment, but the, the story I'm tuning into is the complete opposite of what I'm hearing. And that's what happens to us.
1: How do you rewrite that story in your head?
0: You start to shine a light on the current story and then you choose to put a rose-tinted lens over it. So if the current story is I have been abandoned, I'm rejected, well, the rose-tinted story is I live in a very loving household. And then what's the, what are all the th- things that you look for in your life to validate the negative story and then what are all the things you can look for to validate the rose-tinted story?
1: Sounds like you're talking about gratitude. Gratitude. <laughs>
0: One of the things. One of the things? Yes. Is gratitude something that you try to practice? I don't try and do anything because <laughs> <laughs> try is the opposite of trust. <laughs> you know, when you're trying, you're pushing shit uphill. Mm. Um, I I gratitude, I practice gratitude daily, yes. I practice it. Uh, it's a part of my mantra every day in my mind. Sometimes I write it down, sometimes I don't, but it's something I rehearse every day and, and it's... Um, it's an anchoring process. But today, for example, I woke up and all I could think about was how tired and shitty I felt. And then I went back into my mantra and it lifted, elevated me for a moment. And then I went back into the tired and shitty and I just went, you know, I'm just going to sit in tired and shitty today. And that's okay. Because tomorrow I'll choose to be something else.
1: Let's talk about your venture, the new... Awake Academy? The Awake Academy. Mm. I see it written up on this Beautiful board yes. where we're sitting in your lovely house here in Curl, Curl. Welcome to my office. And Curl, Curl Freshwater.
0: Queenscliff. Again, Queenscliff. Yes. Um, also.
1: Can you tell me a bit about the Awake Academy? I've looked a little bit into the website, but mm. I'd love to hear from you because I remember when we did last sit down, it was in that conception stage. Yes. It's now out in the world. Give me a little bit of a rundown and the listeners what the Awake Academy is. So
0: it's a centre for self-empowerment. So the idea is to help people detach from fear and take control of their lives and live a life they love. And it's interesting, you know, we talk a lot about stories and in round two we go deep into these stories because it's a seven-round online course and there's 29 workbook exercises and I won 29 events on tour and there's 19 videos and I was on tour for 19 years mm. and it's seven rounds and I won seven world times. <laughs> Coincidence? On purpose? I think not. <laughs> anyway, it's um, yeah, it's a seven-round online course to help people wake up, own their shit and trust in love. And right now we're going through a period where we've endured a period of absolute fear, uncertainty, change and challenge which increases levels of anxiety and depression and all the things that we're seeing in in the world these days. The concept behind the course was to help people detach from fear and bring back the fun and find their flow and to bring more feelings of centeredness, connectedness, confidence, to help people build their resilience and it's all through an awareness of feelings. So it's three chapters, uh, identifying your awareness factors. So awareness of your feelings, awareness of your strengths, awareness of the things that you love to do. Right now we're so distracted by what's going on around us that we rarely sit in our own centre or recenter ourselves and define us for ourselves. Who am I? What do I love to do? Who do I stand for? What are my strengths? Constantly we're being told what we're not, right? We're weak and we're feeble and all these other things. Then the, the second round is all about awareness of your stories, your judgments, your triggers. And then the, th- the third round is alignment with yourself, like creating your I am mantra, learning how to meditate, uh, getting really clear on uh, I've created this model because the course is called Own Your Truth. And so we have your Own Your Truth model. So. What are your rose-tinted stories, and what are your loves to do, and what are the roles that you play in your life that you now detach from the fear of and embrace as a, in, in a whole, in a more positive way or optimistic way? Anyway, it goes all the way through to aligning yourself with a dream team and then awakening your spirit to bring in more play, more celebration, more fun. Um, and it was all based on the forty years of lived and life lived and loved um, experiences from being a professional surfer, and then some of the things that I've learned in retirement as well.
1: Yeah, it's so awesome. I'm just watching your face light up when I'm you talk so about that. It's so it. exciting. How <laughs> I great do are love new ventures <laughs> and being an entrepreneur and all that kind of.
0: Yeah, who fun launches stuff? a business in a pandemic? You know, like, <laughs> but I mean, the objective is to help people, and and right now it's a perfect time for well, people to be doing this work.
1: Exactly, and that's why I'm so proud and happy to be doing my good human factory work. Yes. It's awesome. We've we've both started businesses that are perfect to empower people to take control, and this year has been such. An important time for reflection. Mm. And it's awesome that you're like aligning with people and letting them align with themselves and take a bit of responsibility in the way that they live their life. And I feel like that's happened so much in our days with mainstream media and social media. Everybody's trying to live up to something that isn't their truth. And yes. owning your truth is such a such a question that I feel like we miss when we're at school. There's not much about who you are and what matters to you. And mm. At what stage do you think you found your truth and what matters to you the most?
0: That's a very good question. When did I find my truth? Because I I can... I can instantly pick moments where I denied myself of my truth, you know, when I was hustling or or pushing or lying or betraying or doing things that were misaligned with my values or upsetting people, or, you know. The, I know I can instantly pick those moments. But I know when I've been aligned with my truth because that's when life becomes a little more effortless. Like doesn't mean it's not hard but it's effortless. There so you go. It flow state. Yep, it, it, it's moments where, okay, you're in for the, you're in for it. Whatever comes, you're gonna, you're just gonna accept it and deal with it when it comes. And so, I know I truly found my truth when I won my first world title. You know, I was really anchored in my truth because that was an effortless world title. My seventh one, uh, my sixth one, um, I was not in my truth until I had to compete for on the day, and that's when I really anchored in my truth. And then I became aware of my own. Intrinsic motivators and drivers of you know the catalyst of being adopted and and that fear of rejection, which is what's driving me to become the six times consecutive world champion. But post surfing um, retirement was really challenging. You know, I, I fell out of it again, and I and I started saying yes to everything and everyone, hoping and praying and thinking and guessing and trying and waiting for something to lift me up and and um, and fulfill my life. And it was because I was denying myself my own personal fulfillment. So there's, yeah. there's, been a lot of, there's been a lot of awakenings and that's the premise for this course and that's why it's called Awake Academy as well.
1: Yeah, it's so great. And you touched on it really quickly there was that retirement. It's such a weird time in athletes' lives and it's almost like your identity's lost. And yeah. how, how difficult was that little stage of your life, moving from the best surfer of all time to... Lane Beachley retired.
0: I had relevance deprivation and I did consider a comeback a couple of times <laughs> thinking that the women's tour needed me, you know, but of course that was not the case. And I think it took me about four years to adjust. You know, as, as I said, I was saying yes to everything and everyone and I um, I kept looking for something to replace what I felt like I'd lost. So I'd lost that sense of identity, that sense of belonging, that sense of structure that sense of um, community and connection, and, uh, and it was irreplaceable. And uh, in the corporate world, no one puts you on a platform and sprays you down with champagne after you win with something, <laughs> after you win something, you know. No one gives you a trophy and says, stand up there in a bikini and let me spray you down. Um, so I had to be realistic with what my expectations were and it did take me a long time to adjust. And I had to go and see a mentor and a lot of those life lessons I've included in my course on your truth.
1: Yeah, that's great. How special or how important was that at the time of not knowing your truth and being lost with identity after the career to f- see somebody and find a mentor and realign with that person who's, I guess, outside of your inner circle but then can really give you that sense of who you are and give that extra bit of self-worth? How important was it for you to find that person that gave you that extra bit of Acknowledgement.
0: Extremely important. Well, first, I had to recognize that I needed the help, Mm. and that was the first step. And then, when I recognized that, I actually asked someone within my inner circle if they could recommend anybody. So, because recommendations are gold. And she recommended a a girl called Debbie Spellman, who I then reached out to, and who I've I've then asked other people to reach out to since then, because she was a, a golden influence in my life. And she helped me, other than processing all of the attachment that I had to my career and the identity and everything and she helped me detach from that. What she really also helped me do was strengthen my bond with my biological mother. Because it was my judgment of my mother's story that was preventing me from connecting with her in the first place. And so just recognizing that was really profound. And so that's why in my course I talk about detaching from your judgments or first becoming aware of your judgments, because I believe that it's our judgment of somebody. And we always judge what we don't understand and we fear what we don't know. So therefore we judge people before we get to understand them. And then that makes us right. And so that way we can sit here and you can sit there and I can keep you there because I'm being, you know, I'm right. And that was the mistake that I made with my mother. She had a story. I didn't believe in it so therefore I judged it as being wrong and that prevented me from ever having a a real deep connection with her. And then when I became aware of that, I was like, oh, wow, I'm actually sitting here not trying to prove you wrong but I'm actually wanting to prove myself right. (laughs) <laughs> so that was a real uh, awakening. So there was a lot of different processes that we went through over the six weeks and um, and I'm deeply indebted to her for mentoring me through some of my challenging processes or some of my challenging experiences to come out the other side a more awakened and a more centred, confident person that was able to now detach from the tour until such time as Steph Gilmore won her fifth consecutive world, no, her fifth world title. She won four in a row and then won her fifth a couple of years later. Then relevance deprivation hit again. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to be considered the GOAT anymore because <laughs> Steph is there. But you know what? How much more do I need to do?
1: Oh, I mean, you, you've done it all. <laughs> don't worry. You don't need to do much no, more. No, I don't.
0: Steph's amazing.
1: Yeah, Steph's she awesome. She's extraordinary. All right. We've got two more questions I okay. want to ask you. Go. What sort of advice would you give to a young woman who wants to make it in a sport that isn't, I mean, surfing definitely is becoming a lot more equal and equal prize money. There's a lot of other sports out there that are far behind surfing. Surfing's taken a lot of good steps because of your influence.
0: Thank you.
1: What sort of advice do you give to young girls who are trying to make it in a sport or anything in life, Mm. girls who, I guess, put these speed bumps in front of them to achieve big dreams.
0: Yeah, the only limitations in life are the ones we place in front of ourselves and and with girls especially, you know, we, we're really emotionally driven and we want to belong or we want to have friendships and we want everyone to love us but at the end of the day that's not feasible and it's not realistic. Not, everyone's not going to love you. So, it starts with the self. You need to love yourself. And I hated myself. I had very little compassion for myself. I had very little, very little love. I had a lot of judgment. I had a lot of fears. I had a lot of darkness that I lived in. But I put on this happy persona as if, no, it's all good. I got this. And all that did was drive people away. And so, when I learned to love myself, people, I then allowed people to love me. But that's a, I mean, that's a really, challenging thing for anyone to do, any, any human being, let alone a young female aspiring to achieve something great in the, in the sporting world or any world. But it really does come down to who are you and what do you stand for? I have a, a sustained success model and it starts with having a clarity of vision. And the clarity of vision really does come down to who you are Like what are your values? What do you stand for? What do you want to achieve? Then the second part of the model is who do you need in your life to help you achieve it? And the last part of the model is what actions are you taking that are getting you closer either to that dream team or that vision? And if you can just keep subscribing to that, that becomes your accountability partner. Uh
1: I love that. It's such a – having roadmaps and breaking it down like that is such a great way and having that purpose and that philosophy. And I know you touched on values just saying That's something that I – I'm really trying to double down on is really understanding my core values and living by something. And I think it can give you purpose in everyday life Mm. by living by values and having integrity, honesty, courage. You can
0: Well a lot of those values I mean, we see those as values, but they're actually idealisms. So that your values are very unique to you and they your values govern your behaviors. So sometimes we actually have values that sabotage our life versus support our lives. And so it's an. Um, if you want to re- really double down on your values, get a book called The Values Factor, which John D. Martini wrote, and that'll help you get really clear on your values. And he just basically puts you through all these questions, and you can then ask yourself what they mean to you. But um, I mean, I can do that with you before you leave today. I'll help you with <laughs> your values. I'll get, it takes ten minutes, and I can get you really clear on what they That's are. That's
1: awesome. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm working with my sports cycle and I'm actually writing a Good Human Handbook with 28 oh. days, 28 values, where you, I guess. Think about that value for the day and say, does this resonate with me? Do I want to live by this value? Mm. There's not every value, it's not for everybody. Like, no. we don't have to hold it, certain ones close, but it's, mm. I think we're missing the point a lot with education and students that living with values and living with knowing who you are is far more important than. Learning Shakespeare and stuff, and that's in my mind. It's oh, I very-
0: agree. You know, we're missing we are, we are failing our children in the education system as far as self awareness, um, emotional intelligence. You know, all those things which are which I believe were my fundamental pillars to my success. Yes, I was talented. I wasn't naturally talented and I had to work bloody hard at at improving my skill level because I taught myself how to surf. I had fundamental flaws in my techniques that held me back until one day I realized that I needed to let go of everything I knew and start again. But that was because I had the intelligence to recognize that things weren't going right. And I also recognized who I needed to be surrounding surrounding myself with. So yeah, you're right. Um, understanding your values, your your intrinsic motivators. Um, The fact that I had a broken family also is a testament to the knowledge that it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond that makes the biggest difference in your life. Resilience is built through one strong connection. Confidence is built through working it out as you go. And self-belief comes from learning how to do it poorly before you learn how to do it right. So... I feel that where we're really failing our children today is we're breeding people who have reliance versus resilience. We're not allowing our kids to fail. We're not allowing them to fail safely. And that's where I feel my deepest benefit came from as a child was, yeah, I had a broken family and I had all this distress and trauma, but ultimately I was allowed to fail and it was safe and it was okay. And I learned valuable lessons from that.
1: Yeah, so beautifully put. Another, you touched on confidence, something that I have learned a couple of years ago that I try and live by is the act of confidence comes before the feeling of confidence. Yes. And and it really does. Like mm. you sometimes need to put on that brave face and your body can pretend to be confident almost and then the mind follows because we've, we're capable of so much more than our minds almost tell us a lot of the time and yeah. unlocking that is so powerful.
0: It's interesting. You know, I, taught a, I took a girl surfing yesterday. Um, I gave her a surf lesson and she actually won it through Dolly magazine 15 years ago and I honoured it because <laughs> she didn't have enough phone credit to call me back when I called her. Anyway, um, she had a massive fear and she had almost drowned a couple of years ago, so has a, a embedded fear in the ocean and, and immersing herself in the water. And so I took her out to waist depth and I just had her hold the board and I said, what's your mind telling you right now? And she's like, I'm feeling the levels of anxiety. I said, just tell me, what's the story? Where are you, where are you going? Where is it taking you? And it was taking her back into the past. It was taking her back to that moment when she almost drowned and came up and felt all of that. She was starting to feel all of that fear again, and I said, "That's the ego's job. This—it's not where you are right now. Because if you take a snapshot of where you are right now, you're safe. You can hold your breath for eight seconds, which is the average time of a wipeout." You have a life preserver, which is my surfboard right here, and you have a lifeguard, which is me standing right next to you. So there's nothing around you right here, right now, that would indicate you're in any fear. The only thing that's telling you that you need to be in fear of is what's going on between your ears, your ego. That's what's coming up to tell you. And the reason it's coming up is to tell you, if you do this, you're going to outgrow me. And the ego does not want to be outgrown. So if you don't do this... No, actually the ego is saying if you do this, you'll drown. Mm. And so then you pull back and you walk back onto the beach, you go, I can't do it. And your ego goes, yes, see, I told you so. And then you've just validated yourself because as humans, we'd rather be right than happy. So scary <laughs> the thing. ego, yeah, the so the ego needs to be kept in check. Yeah. So every time you're stepping outside of your comfort zone, you're actually expanding your comfort zone. For sure. Yeah.
1: There's no growth in the comfort zone. No,
0: there is no growth. and But that's what your ego doesn't want you to grow. It wants to leave you in a life of mediocrity and where it can predict every move you make.
1: Exactly. So, the can- brain wants to survive, not yes. grow. I'm going to give you the last question okay. that we ask everybody. Yes. What does being a good human mean to Lane Beachley?
0: Oh, hanging out with good humans like you, Cooper. <laughs> that's what being a good human to me is.
1: Oh, that's beautifully put. Thanks so much, Lane, as I know so many people are going to get so much out of it. Definitely check out theawakeacademy.com.au. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Check and, it yeah, out. you. You can you. follow Lane on all her socials and, yes. yeah, looking forward to everybody getting to hear this chat.
0: Yeah, me too. Thanks for your time.
1: Thanks so much, Lane.
0: Thanks for being a good human. <laughs>
1: Always. Good Humans was presented by me, Cooper Chapman. Producer Alex Mitchell, audio production by Darcy Thompson.
0: Listener, even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than
1: similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars